1: welcome to security and security, hosted by me johnny c but this is the celebrity mental health podcast or it's okay to not be okay and whether you're watching on youtube or listening on spotify or apple music wherever you're listening click that subscribe button leave a five-star rating and a review and let's keep spreading the word it's okay to not be okay Now, let me turn about my guest today is one of our favorite comedians and debate panelists in the uk you've seen him in, everywhere on times radio on the jeremy vine show he's everywhere talking about politics but in a different way and it's when he brings out his new book the british bloke decoded that i went ah hold on a minute whether you are a man yourself or you've got a brother or an uncle or a dad You need to read this as a Bible to understand the validation and the typifications of what it means to be a British bloke today. And I'm delighted he joins me to talk about the mental health themes of being a guy. It's Jeff Norcott. Hello, mate. I want to start by talking about your mum, if that's okay, because Mm -hmm. it's quite interesting. In your book, you talk about how she grew up in the care system, and I wonder how that set the bar for what you went through in your childhood based on her experiences. So how was your childhood with that in mind? She didn't
2: have like a family life in her early life. And I suppose people typically can either kick or conform to what they knew in their childhood. So she could either have been very closed and not sought attachments, but or the opposite, you know, which was to hold things very close. So she was very loving, very involved, very engaged. Also, you know, like definitely had abandonment issues. I think, which which is understandable. And um, so she's quite an intense mother, but she was very. She also came at it with like a, a blank slate as well. So she sort of she instigated her own style of parenting, almost kind of just tore up the blueprint and and went her own way. Which, so it made she was a bit of a maverick, I suppose is, is the best way of putting it.
1: So you didn't feel suffocated of she was trying to make up. That she didn't have certain aspects in her childhood that she kind of put onto you that you had to be so, so family focused. A lot, like a lot of mums do. She made me a little man, you know,
2: and and we were definitely very very close. So I was certainly a massive mummy's boy, you know, in the early years. Like I didn't play any sport or anything. It was it's was actually weird. Like she, I think she kind of worked that out. We moved to a council estate when I was about nine or ten, and then. I think we both decided that I wasn't anywhere near manly enough. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I started like, I went and saw, I started playing football. I was sort out a football team. And if anything, she then like kind of, she went the other way, you know, she was like, right, you know, you gotta be, you gotta do what you gotta do. Boys will be boys, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, um, so yeah, I think she got to a point where perhaps, cause you know, like with a divorce, with a difficult marriage, she definitely tried to hold us both very close throughout all of that. But I also think that when things improved,
1: you know, she, she sort of loosened the reins as well. Well, that's why it's really interesting that you were nine years old when this happened. And seeing your parents go through a divorce at the age where you're, you're still very much a boy, you know, it's not even like you've got any real identity. And so not having that constant male role model in your council estate in Wimbledon, growing up, going, dad's come home from work. I can see him and whether he's got the newspaper mm. or the whiskey out or etc., or he's doing the housework. How did you find that navigation as that young boy of going well? Do I want to be a boy playing football because I've got no one to look at to think is that the right thing to do? Well my dad wasn't very sporty, It was a very strange thing on the Norcott side of the family it was. I once
2: asked him his hobby and he was like he said mortgages, you know. He was very <laughs> uh very straight down the line guy. Uh, and so but then when we moved to the council estate it wasn't that long before my stepdad moved in and he was a solid you know grafter of of a man worked really hard like back breaking manual work you know he's a removal guy so um so yeah it wasn't long where I didn't have that and actually that was that was good continuity in a way it happened quite quick I guess which was complicated in some respects emotionally but it we, we we weren't growing up buck wild sort of sort of thing you know there was a there was a two-tier discipline system within, within the house you know and and my dad was around I mean where we moved to was only um, maybe not even half a mile from where my dad lived you know so we could walk over there and, and stuff like that so I think that you know the divorce was stressful but my parents handled aspects of the continuity pretty well really it wasn't
1: they weren't acrimonious well not in, not in front of us <laughs> yeah. and then obviously picking up more in recent times you lost your mum in 2009 it was 14 years ago now what were the lessons she taught you in that time between being that council boy little jeff to the jeff that you know that that, 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 that those last thoughts you had with her i think that she was very much like lived for the moment her
2: and my dad were like polar opposites you know my dad was and this is a big part of my personality is work hard, you know, get a bit of money, take care of your responsibilities, provide all that all that sort of stuff, which is really important, I think. But she was also like live for the day, you know, she epitomized the other side of it. She knows she never really liked having money in a way. If she had like a bit of extra cash, she would just spend it. She just couldn't for some reason, you know, being comfortably in a comfortable financial position, it, it was it was odd to her. And maybe that was because of her own childhood. So so I think that you know the loving side of things I think I took on and I'm quite you know family orientated as well I enjoy you know it's, it's weird I mean you can stereotype too much about class but loads of middle class people I know they really see seeing their family as a chore like it really does their edit you know whereas I I really gobble all that up and maybe it's because the family gatherings we had are always noisy and funny and and and, and you know and vibrant, you know, it's not that thing of us sitting there all silently nursing grievances. I, I am, um, my family were always very uh, indiscreet, almost, you know, with what we would discuss. So I, 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 you know, we're there's not many of us left now, we're a very small family, but I do seek
1: out, I, I did always seek that out whenever I could. What do you think? It's also the fact that you've not got an option. So whereas you might have the white middle-class male who goes to work in the city of London and he works from, I don't know, 7am to 7pm and he comes home after drinks with the boys at the pub after work and basically eat his dinner and go to bed where, or play football or whatever. Whereas because of the career path that you went down as a jobbing comedian, having to be on the road, having to go from gig to gig, and you might be doing two gigs a day, that that family time is more important to you because you have that option to do, to have family time, which they don't because they're working. And yet you're choosing to have the money side because you've got that hard work in you of going, I've got to make as much money as possible in this amount of time.
2: Yeah, I think that one of the weird things about comedy is that people, you know, friends have often said to my wife, like, oh, it must be, it must be so awful with him being away all the time and this, that and the other. And the truth is mostly I get home, you know, after tour shows. Mostly last four weeks have been a bit of an exception and it's been tricky, but mostly I get back. And actually the other side of that is is as you rightly say, if if a bloke goes and does a job where he doesn't get into like six, seven, kids are in bed by half eight, you know, like that time for what it's worth is not a huge amount of time, especially if he's getting an early train or or he's going out to work. So where I have been around, I've been around during the week, you know, and I can do the drop off at school to pick up and, and stuff like that. So it comes out as kind of cost neutral, maybe. The, the only thing is the impact on the weekends, perhaps. But even then, you know, if, if where you're gigging is not too far away on a Friday and a Saturday night, you can kind of do, you know, take them to a kid's party or inflate a bounce or soft play, you know, 11am on the Saturday and still have a little bit of a nap before you, you hit the road. But I do I do think the one thing now, you know, for dads and blokes generally is that you, that, that capacity to be more engaged, right, you know, with, with being a father. I mean, one thing I have started to think, and I didn't do a chapter about this in the book, but I might write an article on it, is is to have it all dads. We're always told about have it all mums, you know, or she works and, you know, she, she but she's there for all the things the kids need. I, I know an increasing number of my mates that are sort of, you know, really stretched because they are in that white heat of being in your 40s and 50, early 50s and trying to make your, your mark but also wanting to be there for all the recitals, all the dances, all the gymnastics and all that sort of stuff. So you don't, you know, whereas back in the old days, they go, leave me alone. I'm just going to sit in a room drinking Guinness, you know, or I'll just stay in bed and just be distant from the house. We're sort of trying
1: to do both and it's great, but it's kind of knackering as well. Well, that's you as a father and a son. I suppose the third part is obviously you being a husband, 20 years married next year to your wife, Emma. I suppose that thing of, what those lessons she taught you of what she needs and a husband has probably made that idea for you of I've got to go to the recitals I've got to go to gymnastics because that's what she was looking for in the husband in that version of Jeff that she wanted which is what I'm that role I suppose I'm playing up to now
2: I think because of my family it was also there in me I think what she has done is is she sort of prodded me to be more engaged with my family there is that thing about blokes where if you're lucky enough to marry a good woman you sort of think well she's great she knows about whose birthday is when she knows what all the names of all the kids are you know because there's this thing that once people start having kids beyond the second one you know i can't keep up with the names you know so we don't we're not always on top of the details of our own lives and she was i remember a few years ago she was like well i've got a very big family you've got a very small family you have to send the birthday cards and christmas cards for your friends and family you know which is like that that's you want to talk about feminism that is radical feminism i would say because feminism often talks at of like smashing the glass ceilings often in terms of power and remuneration and money and stuff but actually the things that really blight women's lives on a day-to-day basis is the care responsibilities. so mm-hmm. she was basically saying you've got that's your family you do it and at first obviously I whinged and moaned maybe even cried a bit I'm now glad that I do do that because I think it, it means something you know it means something to the people that I care about that I'm the one that sends the card. Now, the guest the card might be Moonpig. It's still a thing that I set about doing. I picked a photo, I picked a message, and I sent it. And, and the truth is for blokes, is like we do depend on women a lot for the emotional side of our lives still. But you know, you don't know what's gonna happen down the line. And what you don't wanna be is like old and, and you're just not in tune with the people around you because that's where you can find yourself lonely and isolated. So so it's actually, I think, is the manly thing to do. Is to take some responsibility and just take the long view. Really, is that bit by bit? If you let your wife do everything in relation to you, you know your social life, you you won't have a social life. It won't mean anything. You'll just turn up at stuff and you'll just sit quietly and
1: then you'll leave again. So, so I think that 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 is a really good thing my wife has done. But do you not think that's also technology coming through the fact that it's not the woman walks around stereotypically, obviously with her diary with all the kids' arrangements in, whereas now what you can do is you can have WhatsApp groups of your friends, so you can make arrangements yourselves. So you've also got yeah. shared calendars on your phone. And so you can put in if you're gigging or if you're seeing a friend, and then she can pick it up because you don't have that paper anymore of that one person who's holding that diary. WhatsApp has been a revelation for blokes because
2: it, uh, it allows you to kind of keep up in a light-hearted, fast-moving... You know, it's rolling content, effectively, yeah. and where... You know, like a serious point made about like one of the lads having to go for a, a doctor's appointment. And, you know, you're never far away from a joke as well. So it sort of replicates what it's like to be with a group of blokes as well. I think that texting just one to one with blokes, it's better than that. I think blokes just phoning each other. We don't do so well with that, you know, because we that's always usually time we could be doing something we enjoy, you know. But there's no doubt, you know, if you look at like the the issues around male depression, loneliness, and suicide, is that is that something's got to change. I do think that. A lot of the dialogue in the sort of liberal press is always men need to be fixed. Men need to basically have a dialogue that's similar to women's. And I think that that is alienating for a lot of blokes. They're not ever going to be head tilting empaths that just go, so Steve, how are you, Steve? No, how are you really inside Steve? It's just about how can you tweak the male dynamic between each other to be more a little bit more supportive?
1: It's not actually the conversations of the issue. It's almost more probably down to the lifestyle. If we think about, and I'm only going my own experiences, my mum, for example, will always do a four-day week of work, whereas my dad will always work basically seven days a week. And I think, mm. you know, yes, you might have your downtime on the golf course, at the football, or at the pub with a friend if you can find the time. But really, the lifestyle between what men are doing, what women are doing, are very, very different. And maybe the answer is for men to... Kind of take off the reins a little bit more when it comes to work and not see money as the american dream that we have to have as much money and we have to work every hour as possible
2: mm. yeah i know what you're saying but even as you're saying it i was like no gotta work gotta work it's really because ingrained. that's ingrained in- to us yeah i think it's no bad thing that it's a, a, a facet of a good man is that you want to provide you know your your basic primary responsibility i think in life particularly once you're married and or have kids is to help the household that you're in, you know, survive, prosper, thrive, and and anything beyond that. That comes that comes above a lot of other things for for me. And you can, I think in your 40s, you can get a bit lost in it because that it's sort of like the uh, the money shot, isn't it, of whether or not you get somewhere with what you're doing or or not. I I certainly found that my 40s have been the most stressful bit, really, because you know a young child, which I've you know, I've loved being a parent and stuff, but the you know, to, trying to make stuff happen professionally, uh, particularly at the moment, I do a lot of stuff. You know, write an article, I do a podcast. You know, I I do tour shows, I pop up on these new shows, and you know, a bit for jack of all trades and stuff like that. And individually, all of those things are fine for me to do. I enjoy doing them. But then you think collectively, you just realize that point where your shoulders are up. You know, that defensive posture where it's you are always prepping, always prepping for the next thing. I mean, even in something as simple, like, you know, I, I was on Times Radio at the weekend with Aisha, but, you know, I, I want to know the subjects that we're going to talk about. I want to have something funny or interesting to say about all of those things. So that demands doing a bit of background reading and, you know, and, and I, look, I don't know if anyone going, everyone going on the radio or on podcast do, does that, but I just want to make sure I don't want to have any professional regrets. I don't want to finish doing something, even if it's just popping up over the down the line on the radio. I don't want to come off, and go, oh, that was a bit disappointing. You know, and especially if I I was bad because I was bad, fine. But if I was bad because I didn't prepare, that that would would
1: wind me up. But do you not think that 30-year-old Jeff, who went through his 30s gigging and putting all the hard work in, is now in the 40s able to take a step back and go, look what I've achieved... I've done everything and now I can enjoy it. I don't need to be put in that hard work. And obviously hard work is important, but also to go, look, I've done the hard bit. The hard bit should be over now because I'm you know, in my 30s always worrying about savings. How much savings should I have? What does money mean? Mm. How much I spend on holidays? Whereas I've bought, by your 40s, you'd have basically been able to have those answers now to kind of cruise as a man. Um, the thing with comedy is very competitive at the moment with social media. People are
2: going from naught to several hundred thousand, you know, uh, and, and all of those people, on, you know, in terms of followers and all those people then want to tour, you know. So you have to these days do stuff, whether it, you know, I'm not so hot on the social media, but I pop up on legacy media doing stuff. That's that's where I choose to be. And you do have to do more to remind people that you're around these days. You know, once upon a time, somebody would do the Royal Variety they do a season at the end of the pier, you know, happy days, right? Maybe pop up in a carry on film. That's not an option. Now, if you're a comic, you've got to be producing content. Most of the time, it's just, it's just how it is now. And I think a lot of comics you'll find will, will get burnout soon because everyone's trying to do everything. You know, I do the podcast once a week, which I enjoy um, doing but it is because you've always got something to flog as well you know whether or not it's the book uh, or whether or not it's the tour and there was a wise guy in comedy once said to me like comedy is like pushing a car up a hill you know you can get it really far up that hill but literally the moment you take your hand off it will go all the way down and I wish you hadn't said that but it's kind of true I suppose you know if you are a slightly anxious person like me you know or anxious about you know money and, and stuff like that It it probably wouldn't matter where I got to. I'll be then be looking over the brow of the next hill and going, all right, well, currently I'm I'm fine. You know, financially I'm fine until May of next year. I mean, this is the thing about comedy though, is literally like there's no job security for anybody ever because my tour is currently in until the end of, uh, until the end of April next year. Beyond that, I don't have any income potentially ever again from comedy. Right now, obviously that's unlikely, but that, sort of stalks you a bit, but for somebody like me that was actually, you know, before I started doing comedy, quite a procrastinator and and somebody that would coast, maybe that's a
1: good thing. Maybe that's the kick up the arse I need. It's the idea that I always have to be doing something. But it's interesting because I was watching the Michael Barrymore documentary over the weekend on Channel 5, and it's his legacy and the rising. I'm not talking about everything that happened, you know, with the death and whatnot, but the fact that it was 1982, he did the Royal Variety, as you say, and he got given strike at lucky straight away because of that. And he had all these shows. And yet, the bigger he was, the more demons came out. And I've met a lot of comedians mm. over the past couple of years. And it's always interesting when you talk to them about mental health. And yes, you're on the road a lot. You're in your own company. You love your own company, being in the car, driving up and down. But there's something around the idea of being a comedian, the validation you get on stage, the fact that you get on stage mm. and you're loving life. But all you also want to do is go back to your dressing room and just be introverted again. And there's that. Mm. argument in your head between being introvert and extrovert and I suppose the question is like now how comfortable you are in your own skin that you don't have to worry about what's going to happen in April because work is work but also it's loving yourself that you don't need that validation to be on that stage for that because not for the money but just for the validation I
2: think I've got better at, at that like dichotomy between gig going well I just sort of think that having really good tour shows is what I'm supposed to do that's my job you know so I don't you know when at the end if people are cheering and it's gone particularly well I just nod you know like like somebody that's built a brick wall you think right Mm -hmm. that I'm a a brickie that's what I do I don't I don't like surf the wave you know there'll probably be these days a handful of gigs a year where you do get that for you where you think wow that was real something else you know real real sort of hall of fame type gig from 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 my stuff but But yeah, I I don't have the demons perhaps as bad as some comics. You know, I do, as you say, enjoy my own company. There's loads of great podcasts now. I mean, that has helped, trust me, for comics driving around here, there and everywhere. But, you know, the last four weeks are a good example of when it can be challenging. I've, I've sort of had several successive weeks of where I've been on the road three to four days a week. And, you know, I was just in Scotland and every day I had to get up, leave the hotel, get to another city, check in, do you know. And, and it, it, it dragged me down, you know, but when I looked at myself yesterday morning going to Dundee Airport, I just looked like a guy that had been on the road, you know, for three or four days. And I did, I was starting to feel lonely, you know, I was, you know, calling my wife a lot more and missing out on the... The, the life of the of the house and, you know, and all, all that kind of thing. I think that in an ideal world as a comic, you know, doing a weekend away every couple of weeks, it kind of works quite well. You get a bit of hotel time on your own, your missus gets a bit of time without you there. But when it becomes successive weeks, as it has been in the last few weeks, yeah, I must admit, it's um,
1: I've struggled a bit. Well, yeah, but the only problem with that, the reason you're on the road so much is because you went to the wrong airport. If you've gone to the right airport, you wouldn't have had that issue. Well, yeah. Well, this is it. I mean,
2: yeah, I was supposed to be going to Gatwick. I went to Luton and ended up having to spend another two hundred and fifty quid to go uh from Heathrow. And then on the way back I went to Dundee Airport, which um I don't know if anybody's been, but I was I was blagged by one of the taxi drivers who said to me, Oh yeah, you can do a bit of Christmas shopping there. I swear to God, it is about it's about the size of a doctor's waiting room. Like it really it's one of the smallest things I've ever seen. I think the staff sort of essentially, they check you in then they run around the other side to do the security searches. <laughs> it, it was, there was one, I checked the live departures board and there was one flight out and on one in all day. And I kept like trying to scroll and so oh, I've, I've hit some filter here. That was it. Um, and, and yeah, you can feel really remote, you know, like where, where, you know, Dundee is a big city and stuff like that, but I was staying a bit outside of it. And just geographically sometimes, just where you are in the world. Some comics, I mean, they'll do like four or five tour shows in a week. I, I think that that's not for me. I'm not that guy. You know, I need to recharge and be in, in my space for a while. But, but you know, a lot of the time comics, maybe it, once upon a time, they might have gigged Thursday to Saturday or Thursday or Sunday. And then Monday, Tuesday, they'd be kicking their heels. Like, you know, today I'm doing my podcast. I'm doing your podcast. That That's part of the job now. And who knows? Maybe less time to be introverted or just obsess about
1: stuff maybe that it gives as much as it takes to wrap it up there's an anecdote on page 215 about harry and Meghan, and thank god you're not doing the normal harry and megan debate but it's really interesting the way you look at them and i suppose that kind of accumulates basically everything we've spoken about today so can you take me through that anecdote please
2: i was trying to work out why the british public was so obsessed one way or the other about harry and Meghan, and i kind of thought that it represented a, a template in a way for a certain kind of relationship where first up, the guy is punching, you know, on a looks level. Like, she, you know, she's a nine, he's a six. And, you know, it's it's harsh to put numbers on it. Six for a ginger is a good number. And I know that that is not right to say these days, but it's union rules. I'm a stand-up comic. I had to make a ginger joke at that point, otherwise I'd be this And then what happens to him And is that when it's more one way than the other, you know, you could see that he's besotted with her. You just sort of felt that there was a guy there that had perhaps sort of lost some of himself in, in the course of a relationship. I know that often girls will say that that happens with them, you know, suddenly the girls go to football with him. But I do think it happens the other way. And then, you know, on the one level, maybe he didn't want to be in Apache helicopters shooting people and stuff like that. But maybe suddenly becoming like a crusader for like, you know, carbon emissions and stuff. It's it's such a, a wild kind of shift that it's almost like in a broader sense, society is the family, And you're the family going, well, he's changed a lot in a short space of time in and around this relationship. How much is is this just who he really is? Or how much of it is is him being kind of, not manipulated is the wrong word, but that he's just gone right over to the other side of where where his bread's buttered. And I I sort of said that, you know, maybe the thing is we all know Harry in our relation, you know, our mates where he was a bit of a laugh, he was coming out and then suddenly met this one girl and then he's like super serious he can't you see him come down the pub, he's she's restyled him. You know, he's wearing, he's kind of like wearing a turtleneck and he's wearing chinos, and you're thinking, who is this guy, right? Who is this guy? And 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 that I think is just it's alarming in any situation when when somebody fundamentally changes as as a result of being in a relationship. Like I've got a mate who they suddenly got this girl who's a vegan, all of a sudden he's a vegan. But you know, there are these rumors in the friendship group days. there are late night runs to a KFC drive through. <laughs> there, there have been rumors, you know, so you go, and that's the point. You go, have you really changed, or are you just are you doing it for a quiet life? And we all, we will all know blokes, right? People listen to this, you know, even if they're very feminist or whatever, very right on, you'll be able to think of blokes that just do it for a quiet life. And I suppose it's still their responsibility. I, you know, I don't, I'm not saying, like, I'm not attacking Megan. I'm, I'm saying, Harry, is this who you are? Or whether you've got a friend like that, is this who you are? And if, it, if it's not, then you've got to have the balls to actually be who you really are in the context of this relationship. Because if that person loves you... They would accept
1: that well obviously Harry if you're watching or listening to here come and answer Jeff and uh, come on and be a guest final question most of the people I have on this podcast are normally reality stars you've not done much reality TV in your lifetime have you been offered gigs oh and you've turned them down or it's not something that you want to be doing I've never done any reality telly when Big Brother first started I used to have a
2: recurring nightmare about being in the Big Brother house and being voted out second, because I always felt like second was the worst. If you got voted out first, it was like, wow, you really like wound people up, you know, and you get the exit interview. But I'm not of the profile where The Jungle or Strictly would ever come for me, but equally I could never do stuff like that. Because just the fear of like, you know, like having to be on all day long and just people seeing People just think I was a miserable bastard, but that would only be because, you know, a lot of the day I'd just be conserving energy and just sitting there, you know, when you see, like, these people in, I I love Armageddon, by the way, I really do love these shows, but when they come up with, like, a song, like, oh, you're going to get the stars, you and you could just see a couple of people that just do not want to be involved in that, like, they just clearly like, but they, they don't want to be seen as a killjoy. The face that you'd see on me when I was pretending to have a good time would be, it would just be an awful thing to behold, so I've got nothing for but respect for people that do go on these shows, but I, I, there is, uh, there is nothing. There is no reality show that I would do. There's no. I'd rather go back to supply tea.
1: Jeff, your book, The British Bloat, decoded, is out to go and buy now. Please do go and buy It's such a good book. I really enjoyed it. Thank you to Jeff Thanks, for speaking bro. to me on Skin and Scared, the podcast. If you like what you heard or what you watched, then please leave a five star rating, click that subscribe button, and leave a review. And let's keep spreading the word. It's okay to not be okay on social media, on TikTok at Johnny 92 on Instagram at Johnny Seaford at Skin and Security podcast, and on X at Johnny Go and check me out. I put teasers of all the episodes out there, so we can keep spreading the word. It's okay to not be okay. I'm Johnny Siefert. Thanks so much for listening or watching. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.